Hello, and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. You're a nutritional epidemiologist at Hind University. Welcome to uh, Bite-Sized Experts. Hi, Stanley. Thank you for having me back. Now, Esther, you're, you're doing work on the impacts of sugar on health. Um, before we start talking about that, can you tell me how you came to nutritional epidemiology and, and to Lund University eventually? Um, yeah, of course. Um, originally, I'm a medical doctor. Um, so I started doing research while I was uh, at my hometown medical school in the, it's called the University of Las Palmas de Gran Canaria, and that's in a really long name for uh, university in the Canary Islands in Spain. So I started um, into research out of sheer luck, I think. One of our professors was starting a study about vitamin D, and I thought, well, this is interesting. And I'm a naturally curious person, so then I decided to see what research was about and how science was made. So this was a study for the bone metabolism unit, uh, but already it had some components of nutrition. And um, then during my classes, we kept hearing how diet and exercise and lifestyle interventions are so important to prevent some diseases. So then I started to see sort of an overlapping um, theme, I guess, of how nutrition could affect certain diseases and how much I liked research. I thought, you know, being a curious person, it was just natural for me to be interested in how things work behind the curtain. So I, yeah, I started to do more research. I graduated medical school and I went into the nutrition group in my university and we worked mostly on Mediterranean diet. Um, but I was interested in preventive medicine and public health, and that's what brought me to Sweden. I went to do a master's in public health, and while I was doing my master's, we had to write a paper about whatever topic we liked, and being a big fan of Jamie Oliver, and the year being 2016, of course, I decided to write about the sugar tax, and then the rest is sort of history. I got my PhD position within the group of nutritional epidemiology um, after writing my master thesis with them on uh, sugar. So then it's been, a, I guess, a sweet ride. I think it's been so fun to research and look into uh, discovering how food interacts with disease and uh, especially sugar. I think it's such a fun topic to look into. Can you tell me something about your current research projects? Yeah, like I mentioned, uh, the focus of my PhD is uh, sugar intake, and the field is nutritional epidemiology, which um, covers food and dietary habits and um, uh, dietary patterns as well, and how they relate to disease or risk factors. 
So we basically look into healthy and unhealthy diets and food patterns. Um, so yeah, my research is mostly based on sugar. Um, and I have looked, like I mentioned on the first series, at micronutrient dilution, which is a phenomenon that is more easily explained if we all look back into our childhood and think about that time where our mothers or our grandmothers told us, don't fill out with candy or you won't, you won't eat dinner. Micronutrient dilution basically is the science principle behind that. If we eat all our calories or all our energy intake from non-nutritious food that are high in sugar and fat, then that means we are not getting as much from our from the nutritious food, like fruits and vegetables, for instance. So um, yeah, we had our uh, the first paper published in Nutrition and Metabolism earlier this year, and um, that was um, really interesting to look into and really interesting results, and it's getting a lot of attention. And currently, I am looking into um, sugar intake as well in different forms and shapes. We thought we should. It's because sugar is such a complex uh, thing to look into. We decided to look at different forms and types of sugar um, and compared it um, with the measurement of the wall of the arteries around the heart as a risk marker for atherosclerosis. So I can give you the exclusive because this is unpublished um, results yet. We just finished the analysis about, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago. And so far we have found no association between these two, but now we are looking into why we are not finding these associations and um, what could be playing into this because it doesn't match our initial theory. But I think there's so much beauty in that too. And that's part of research that no results is also results. And how did we get to that? And what does it mean? Um, and then also um, I have other collaborations with colleagues within my group and I am looking at um, yet another four cardiovascular diseases uh, with intake of added sugar. I I, well, I was co-author of a um, paper uh, looking at sugar and mortality done by my colleague, Stina. And uh, I'm also co-author of another paper on carbohydrate quality. And, and I have planned to look into other conditions as well as part of my, my own PhD project. Um, so I might be looking into other diseases, even other fields. Um, I might include some genetics. And because of my public health background, I'm really looking forward to looking into some policies regulating sugar intake, like for instance, the sugar tax. But I'm also very interested in communication and media and how nutrition research and sugar research is portrayed in the press. And yeah, so uh, I have a lot of things planned, um, but then plans change. And I think we can all testify to that after the pandemic that we are going through. So, um, but yeah, it's, um, it's, I've been busy and I plan to continue being busy and I really love this topic of sugar. Can I, can I ask you, what, what's the importance of genetics in relation to sugar? What we're thinking is just how different people can have different reactions to sugar intake, how some people have a so-called a sweet tooth 
or how they have a preference for sweet taste. Um, and then obviously there's a lot of uh, precision nutrition being discussed. Um, so what's exactly how, uh, what I was saying is how different people can react differently to different foods and also how some might have bigger preference for it or not. So we're looking into different things and it's a little bit of a tricky uh, field because sweet taste is actually a quite complex um, genetic trait, I guess. It's a, it's not one single thing um, determining whether you have a sweet tooth or not. So it, it's a complicated field, but it, it's very interesting and showing very a lot of promise. So we'll see. Can I, can I ask you, are you uh, focusing on any study population? Is it mostly focused on Sweden or is it is it? Yes, as, yeah, as it is right now, most of my studies are based on the Malmo Diet and Cancer Study, which is a very, very large uh, population from Sweden. And it's locally collected. The data collection is quite old. It's from the 90s, but it's one of the highest quality data that we have in the country. I have also looked at uh, a different survey from the um, National Food Agency in Sweden, which is the most recent data for adults. But then even though it's um, collected by the National Food Agency, then it's not so extensive. The number of participants is not so big because it's on a national level. So yeah, I'm mostly looking at uh, things in Sweden. I would like to look into other countries as well. I think it's interesting to see how um, certain results can be replicated in other countries as well. Well, what, Esther, what is the importance of your work, and, and for whom is it important? I can see, I can see where it's going, but uh, I just wonder if there are, you know, things that uh, that uh, I might have missed. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's been a shift in the focus of nutritional research. And we have moved from fats to sugars as the sort of new evil to beat. So uh, we have discovered that sugar intake is associated with numerous conditions. And then it's important to discover what those conditions are and to be able to inform nutritional recommendations. And those nutritional recommendations will inform policymaking and therefore the population will be informed through those. I think because there's such a, a, a pressure, I guess, from the population to learn more about diet and people are starting to be concerned about what a healthy lifestyle is and what healthy dietary habits are. And more and more we, we see that by people who, you know, the increase in number of uh, vegetarian or vegan people, people that want to eat sustainably or that decide to limit their intake of red meat or poultry or fish and to try to do a more plant-based diet. And so then the outcomes of nutritional research are of interest for researchers within and outside the nutrition field, for medical practitioners, for policymakers, for food and beverage industries, and for the agriculture sector, for the hospitality industry that are trying to accommodate the needs or the trends that the population is following. And if you push it to the limit for lifestyle gurus and influencers and fitness enthusiasts and many more. I think the 
because we all eat, we are all interested in food and because we want to be well informed. And I think especially in this sort of era of fake news, it's important to go back to the science and to try to make science understandable. And I think that's where my interest for communication comes in. I, I try to write a lot of popular science and try to make it understandable for everyone because it's not just the academic or the scientific field that is interested in this topic. Everyone has an interest in it. Can I, can I ask you, um, if I ask a blunt question, how much should we worry about sugar and, and consuming it? Um, is it a complicated answer or, or can it be simplified? I was just going to say that that's not a yes or no answer. It's, it's not very straightforward. Um, sugar itself as a research topic, it includes so many challenges that we need to jump over and hurdle and move around and try to um, find sort of an unanimous front and a, a way to for us researchers to come together um, from a point of homogeneity and not just everyone doing what they want. Um, so it's not an easy answer. Um, there are many uh, challenges in sugar research. I think I can name a few. I could talk about this for hours, but I can name a few. I think um, many people confuse the term carbohydrates and sugar, and they use them interchangeably, and um, that's not the case. Usually when we talk about uh, sugars, we mean simple sugars, and then carbohydrates uh, can include both simple and complex carbohydrates. So carbohydrates, the complex ones is, you know, long chain. I don't want to get into to the um, chemistry of it, but we think of starch as complex carbohydrates. And then um, the more simple sugars like glucose or fructose or saccharose, uh, that's what we call sugar. And then uh, to make matters even more complicated, there are different classifications of those simple sugars. So we can, for instance, look at added sugar, we can look at free sugar, or we can do look at total sugar and all those differences. And I can explain what those concepts mean for those who are you know, not sugar experts. Um, so added sugar means all of those sugars that are not naturally happening in food or beverages and that have been added to um, food and beverages during processing or manufacturing or at the table. Free sugars includes added sugars with uh, sugars from, for instance, juices. And then total sugar, it, it includes fruits and vegetables and even dairy, all of the sugars that are containing those. And this sounds very complicated, but the way I like to think about it is, uh, or the way I like to explain it is think of an orange. And if you're eating an orange as a whole, you're eating total sugar. If you make it into a juice, then now you have free sugar. And if you add a spoonful of sugar to the juice, then you have added sugar. And I think because added sugar is the one that it's not naturally present in the orange, then those are the ones that we should be focusing on. And I think um, nutritionists mostly focus on those, but then there are other institutions like WHO and more recently um, the European uh, Foundation uh, Food and Safety Authority are uh, looking into free sugars instead. Uh, so I, it's there are still other classifications out there. There's also a whole debate about liquid versus solid sugars and how 
they have different metabolization patterns and different effects on society, whether they make us feel full or not. And to add to all of this confusion and mess of sugar, then we have the problem that sugar is everywhere. I had this friend um, during high school and medical school that she was allergic to saccharose. So she had me going around the supermarkets looking at the labels of everything. And that's when I realized sugar is absolutely everywhere from mayonnaise to tomato sauce to bread, uh, some salad dressings. So uh, anything that can come in a tin or a packet, you need to look for sugar in it because it, it's used for so many purposes because it's so cheap and easy to access. So this comes as yet another challenge and why it's important to raise awareness towards um, sugar research and how important it is so we can regulate it and hopefully um, trigger um, industry and, um, and the population as well to limit their intake of sugar and for the industries to reformulate products using um, different substances instead. I can see the challenges of doing yeah. doing research on sugar. Um, can you ask? <laughs> can I ask you what are the what are the challenges of, of doing research in nutrition more generally? Oof, uh, yeah, that's a whole. <laughs> I think nutrition in itself, and I think this is probably why I like re nutrition research because it's complex, and I like solving complex problems. Um, the the problem with nutrition is that most of the data that we have is self reported, which means we ask the participants, how do they eat? What do they eat? How often? And we give them different methods that have different uh, levels of reliability, but ultimately it's up to the participants. And there are so many possible biases that can come from that. Uh, some participants may be not filling out a uh, diary because they think, oh, maybe this is not, um, socially desirable if I put that I eat three packets of crisps uh, per week and um, two bottles of soda. And then there are some people that would over-report, for instance, um, protein content. Or, um, and then some people just forget what they ate or am I approximating this enough? Or um, So there are many uh, levels that um, it can be Mm, that sort of nutrition research could potentially lose accuracy. However, because we have been doing nutrition research for a while, um, we have uh, measurements in place to look into this. And that's why we look at really large populations. So these effects are balanced out. But then another challenge is that we usually cannot look at single nutrients or single foods. We mostly look at dietary patterns because it's very difficult to isolate a single product. We can't tell people, okay, you only eat sugar for a week and then you don't eat anything to have as a control group because that's not ethically correct. And some uh, very ethically dubious uh, studies had been performed in the past, especially about sugar. I think there was a famous um, experiment in a Swedish prison about sugar. Um, that and it's probably why Sweden has such strong ethical laws about research now. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a challenge to do the classic clinical trial that we know from medicine because we can't really have a control group that doesn't eat, and and then it's difficult to isolate foods. So for instance, all of the research that we had about um, 
how bad X are for you? Um, how much can we say it's because it's actually just X or is it because we eat them with bacon? And then diet, using diet as an exposure, as a, 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 a subject of research is a, a very, very complex uh, phenomenon. I think um, if we think of, um, let me put an example, I think it's better. So if you think of your breakfast um, and you have something as simple as toast and a cup of tea, it might be that um, the bread that you use is different than the one I use. There are many different types of uh, bread. Uh, but also, did you use butter or not? Did you put jam in it or not? Did you put olive oil? I'm Spanish. We usually do olive oil uh, with bread. And then um, did you eat tea or coffee? Did you put milk in it or not? What type of milk? Was it plant-based? Was it uh, lactose-free? Was it uh, skimmed? What percentage of fat is in that uh, milk? What size is the cup of tea that you're eating and how many slices of bread are you eating with your breakfast? All of these questions vary from person to person. And this is just one meal out of a day, out of one person. So the amount of data we get in nutrition research is so vast. And then we're not even going into the small molecular level of what micronutrients and what ingredients are included in that, in those foods. So um, yeah, like I said, it's very, very tricky. Uh, and very complex research field, but it's so fun and so interesting. Esther Gonzalez Padilla, you've shown how even a spoonful of sugar is not as simple as it looks and how our everyday food is far more complex once you start looking at it. Thank you so much for this enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for having me again. Around the Table is a personal production of Dr. Tess Bird and Professor Stanley Uliajak, who are anthropologists of food and nutrition and of household uncertainty and insecurity. The opinions and ideas expressed are solely those of the contributors and podcasters and do not reflect the opinions of any university body. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>